I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. So we are sitting in your daughter's huge bedroom for New York City, and we're overlooking Freedom One. And uh, Helen, I can't, you had a front row seat to 9-11. And I know that's not why we're here, but I just have to say, what was that like to have three huge windows on Bank Street overlooking 9-11? You know, it was obviously horrible and unsettling and unnerving because we were in a war zone. We had a, when I left and came back to my home, I had to submit my passport, my license, everything like that. But I, I think more than the actual incineration of, of those buildings and those people, which we saw on the news constantly, and also it, it was a film I made for Frontline about 9-11, Faith and Doubt at Ground Zero, I think that was what's the sort of most melancholy part of having this apartment looking out over the towers is that I saw this aching black smoking hole for for what it seemed like years and it was inescapable. You know, it, it wasn't just the first month or so, it was just to look at that hole for a long, long while. So it's a long answer to your question. No, this, I, I can only imagine just the view you have here. And what's, what's in a gift in a small way is that you are a storyteller using, you know, different platforms, but mostly film. And I'm so grateful because you had that personal experience because of that frontline special. Did that, did that open the door to death and dying and what what did open the door if that was not it well i think your question really is why did i make this film yeah. and unless the, the film is into the night into the night portraits of life and death and it's really an exploration in the most intimate way uh about mortality uh, and it focuses on the lives of nine individuals who have been shocked into an awareness that they will die, not far off in the future, but, but relatively soon, and how that awareness changes them. Because when it moves from the theoretical, from the abstract, to the visceral, to the personal, it... Uh, you are never the same. Mm. It's you've gone to a what Hamlet described as that undiscovered country. You're not quite there yet, but you're setting out towards it in a way that's very different than all those lectures I'm sure people go to and the death and dying classes and even the death cafes and and all sometimes very pompous conversations about one day we will die. Actually, there's a wonderful William Saroyan quote on his deathbed, which, uh, which is, 
I always knew that one day I would die, but somehow I thought an exception would be made in my case. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and, I, and I think that's so true for most of us, even those of us who consider ourselves sophisticated and, and, and lean into this subject, that a visceral understanding that I will die as opposed to mankind dying is very different. Hmm. So what did it take to make this film. I've seen it twice. I saw I was prepping last night. First of all, I have to say it's so beautiful. The writing is amazing to me. It spoke to my heart. It's some of your writing is scored on my heart. Um it was beautifully done. But I mean, how how did this all come together? Talk tell tell me in the beginning days your concept of like let's do this. Well, first of all, I listen. I had a lot of friends, including my ex-husband, and and even myself, saying, "Why am I taking this on now? Uh, why not a film about winemaking in the Napa Valley?" <laughs> and, <laughs> hey, if you and, need help on that one, let me know. <laughs> and, and, no, I know. And and I had just come off a very serious film about a big idea of forgiveness and unforgiveness, which took me to war-torn countries like Rwanda and South Africa and Germany and, and difficult, a difficult subject, a big idea. And I really felt next film I'm going to make in my own apartment and it's going to be easy. And it, this wasn't. And I, I th- and I thought about it because I got such pushback from friends about making it. And I think it, in some ways, it was inescapable. I mean, I'm of that period of my life, on the later side of midlife. I'm a baby boomer, and mortality presses in on me, on all of us, and friends who died, close friends, and friends who are dying as, as I speak. And, you know, what's that wonderful quote? I'm sure you know it, of Philip Larkin, one of my favorite poets. <clears throat> Death is the roar underneath everything. Mm. And frankly, I, I, was, I was feeling that roar with a kind of urgency and immediacy that I, that I hadn't for a long while. So, that, you know, that was, that was part of it. And I'm also someone, because... My parents died when I was very young, when I was 11. So death has sort of cast a shadow over me for a long, for a long while. I, I've understood its power and its finality and its shadow. Mm, uh, that's a great analogy um, because I use that when I talk about my grief as a shadow, that my shadow is forever changed. And you because know, when you lose someone you love, whether it's friends or family – you go through a rebirth of of trying to find out who you are without them, and so that shadow analogy is is it's it means a lot to me because I use that and it feels like, you know, closure is a myth, and and you're just trying to learn to live with your grief and wear it well. Mm, that's nicely said. <laughs> and but, wear it well, so it doesn't oppress you and. Yeah. I mean, I think Caitlin Dowdy is a kind of wonderful example in the film of someone who hadn't, because it happened 
in front of her so horribly that, and it wasn't talked about, that it cast the shadow that pressed a mute button on her life. She didn't see life vividly or intensely. She found it difficult to love, to, to commit to life. And the only way she, she could find her way out of that was really to go into the flames of the crematoria and to mm. work, you know, I'm sure you've had her on your podcast, is to get close to what she feared the most. And and she was liberated. I uh, totally agree with you. Is And it was really interesting because I didn't know what intrigued her to come into this kind of different speak. But she's, along with you providing the platform, you're you're convincing me to think about death differently. And that's that's what we're all here to do is how do we normalize this taboo and how do we recognize that death is just a moment? So the more we talk about death, it's really about life. So as you were making this film, what life lessons were prevalent? Because I'm sure they were coming at you. Well, I mean, so I think the question for me is what – how the film changed and what I did learn from it. Um, I mean, when I, I first described this film in one of those cheap titles that you have a working title, what's next, oblivion or afterlife? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> because so many of my films have been whether explicitly or implicitly, about faith and unbelief and what's our story, uh, you know, whether my first film was in a Trappist monastery and I sort of, even if my films are not directly about it, whether gang kids or McCarthy are victims, those big existential questions are always at the bottom of my films. What's of value? Why must we die? How do we live with death in our eye? And in a funny way, this film let me sort of, I came out of the closet with this film. It gave me permission to ask the questions that I think all of us want to ask. We want to stop one of those trivial dinner parties and tap the glass and can we stop talking about Who's going to win the Oscar? And can we talk about how we feel about the fact that we're going to die? And I think about doing that frequently, and <laughs> I never do. So the film really, in is a sense, my tapping of the glass at the dinner party and saying, how do we really feel about this? And so anyway, I think the film began in a much a less interesting way because I was preoccupied. I'm an agnostic. I have no faith, but I'm fascinated with people who have made a radical commitment to faith. I, spent, I had a four-hour series on the Mormons. I spent four years making that. I, I looked at questions of belief and unbelief in 9-11, faith and doubt at ground zero, how, how we thought about religion differently after 9-11, how we, our conception of God changed, how unbelievers actually found faith, and how believers lost their faith, and, and the darkness at the heart of religion. So these questions are sort of almost always there, but they came out front center in this film. So it started out, you know, what's next? And it quite quickly became something else because people's reflections on, on, 
on death and how they experienced it and how they thought about it were so much richer and more variegated than the question of, well, what's going to happen to us? Are we moving into the netherworld of energy or are we, are we heading into oblivion and the terrors around that or the acceptance around that? Or do we have a vision of an afterlife? And, and it, it became more about narratives, yes, that was the most important part of the film for me, that everybody is searching for some kind of narrative, a story of solace in the face of this great mystery, um, and, but it's very different for a lot of people, and it's, and it's more about life than death, mm. it, and is the solace as it was for the astrophysicist, looking at the stars and feeling solace in the cosmic largeness in front of him and not feeling that existential terror that I'm so small and, and the stars are so large. And that was one narrative. Or the narrative of the near-death vision that someone had or the, or the narrative that Caitlin had of mm. no faith but feeling at peace with that being the case and and inhabiting her life with greater intensity and 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 color and drama and not sleepwalking through her life and largely that came through being aware of how brief it is that we're here or so many different so many religion art uh, you know just acceptance uh, it, there's so there were so many stories that i i came away from from interviewing over 200 people. Oh, wow. Pre-interviewing. I only to put nine of them on film. But just humbled almost by the power of storytelling, <clears throat> the realize, realization that people had as they came close to death that their stories were not sustaining them and they mm. needed a new narrative. And the narratives were falling away, which then was a, a re-examination of their life and what had been of ultimate value. And if they had the time, how might they reorder their lives uh, and create a stronger narrative that was going to take them into the night? Is that what you hope this film does is kind of pause and because yeah. that's what I found myself yeah. doing yeah. is pausing and even reflecting and even changing some of the things that I want at my end of life. And to me, of course, I'm in this industry, I'm 17 years in hospice, so I don't fear that, but the majority of the public do. And, and I do feel like this movie is a permission slip and I, 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 hats off to you because you, it was such a great thing that even someone like myself who's been in this industry still is having questions and that's okay. So what other things, I mean, what do you ultimately hope this film does? My ambition for the film, my hopes for the film is that people will look at death and the way we think about death as a gateway and as an inspiration to a richer, fuller, and above all, more conscious life. You know, the crafting of story again, the crafting of a narrative is, my hope is so many of the people in the film began to think about their lives under the pressure of 
of a death that was coming upon them in a very different way. And many of them had a regret that they had not done that sooner. So again, if I have a hope for this film is to is to not sleepwalk through your life, to use death as a kind of provocation to craft a story, a narrative of value that answers the question of why we get up in the morning, what is your solace, what is... The big why. The big why, the absolute big why, and not assume that you're going to have clarity at the moment of death. To do this before the diminishment that inevitably comes as one gets sicker or dementia is while you are still vibrant and alive is to figure out some of those big existential questions. And certainly the questions cannot be answered, <laughs> but they can be refined. Yeah, that's a, such a great thing too, is yeah. is to ponder that and, yeah. and allow the questions and answers to change. And they allow them to change. And as there is, um, and to be challenged. I mean, one of the stories is the Black Baptist minister who's close to the end, a man of unquestioning faith and his wife. Um, and he and his wife went through I mean, the nightmare of all parents, both of their children, both of their sons had sickle cell anemia. I think that's I'm pronouncing it right. And that was 23 years of suffering, 23 years of in and out of hospitals. And he's meanwhile a minister whose, whose narrative of solace is obviously living a good life and and leaning into an afterlife. Uh, and every day that was challenged, and his faith was lost, as was his wife's faith uh, in the final years of their son's unrelenting pain in and out of hospitals. Yeah. And he reconstructed his faith after this, but it was a different faith. It was a hardier faith. It was a challenged faith and one that allowed for questions. So that was a very, for me, that was a very powerful portrait because in its essence, this film is a series of existential portraits of people mm. on the edge of their lives. Or That's death. really so true. That's so true. You know, I'm, I feel so privileged because I got to see the movie in my cousin's Upper East Side apartment and in my RV as I travel. But how can other people access this? Where, where, cause you, I mentioned when we, I mean, I'm sitting in your home and you're like, I'm packing to go promote this film. So tell me a little bit about what is that promotional for this, this, I guess is that a promotional tour? Is that what it's called? No. It, well, it's it's. I've been invited to show the film in a number of cities: Louisville, Salt Lake, St. George, Utah, Napa Valley. Oh, there's I a think few you up. need an assistant like Key, me. Yes, Key, you know, Key West, <laughs> and and th- those have been invitations. And my hope, though, is that this film, the life of this film, the afterlife of this film, and some of my films have had a very rich afterlife because they're about these subjects that are eternal. They don't go away. They're not time-bound, is that the film moves beyond theaters, which is gratifying and wonderful that movie theaters want to show it. I want it to live in hospices. I want it mm. to live in universities. I, I 
really love it to live in high schools where these courses are emerging uh, and, and in hospitals and to really have that kind of life which provokes the conversation. I mean, that is the purpose of this film, which is for people to see it in the safety of their living rooms uh, or in the safety of a, a small gathering in a church basement, in a classroom, and to start talking and to start talking. And, and the responses so far have been, the letters written into me and to PBS have been unusual unusual in my 40 years of making films really and, and they and they go beyond which I always love you know <laughs> admiration for a beautifully shot film and you know riveting interviews and beautiful construction of course we always want that but right, right. but I actually never have gotten this before with the exception of faith and doubt at ground zero gratitude being expressed letters that are so heartbreaking from people who will say for example one woman i've seen the film twice it's two in the morning i'll be dead within three months but i feel now i can go into the night with greater equanimity i mean that's one kind of letter and the others which i love sometimes they're funny saying i've been married to this man for 50 years and we have a very good relationship and we talk about most everything, but we've never been able to talk about this. But I made him watch it tonight, and we are now finally able to have the conversation. And the conversation then leads to so much else. So that the, what I love about your work, especially specifically with topics such as death, is you open, I will say even you kick the door open, that creative people and the arts are having uh, are permission to engage in what we Americans tend to look at as a medical event. Um, death tends to be looked at as a very clinical thing. And, and I want to reclaim that because it's a human thing. And, and I love that artists like you are saying, you know what, everyone should be a part of this conversation. It's not just medical. We can and and we need different platforms like films to help ease into that storytelling. Um, and that's what's so exciting is to see a lot of creatives entering into this conversation, which they had and they should have been all along. But I think this film is is going to open up many, many other creatives to see and tell their stories because we all have one. So how, because my goal, I mean, I, I, you, one of your goals is to take it to hospices and I feel like I know about 4,500 hospices nationally. So I'm like, how can I help you? How can I bridge Please the help. gap? <laughs> well, and so how, so let's just say a hospice wants to view this film. How do they get in touch um, to get this film? Through the website. We have a website, nearthenight.com. It's currently on Hulu right now. And, um, of course, you have to join Hulu, but you can join. They will not be happy with me saying this, but you can join for free <laughs> for seven days. And then hopefully you'll realize that Hulu has a great stable of films and stay on. And then you, um, then you can buy the DVD and you can stream it for very little money on Amazon as well. But I, 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 I really urge people to Get the film and yes, see it alone, but you know, or 
reach me. I love coming and talking about it. I really do. I think it's important to lead a discussion as well, but that, that you gather a few close friends together so that conversation can be so rich. And it leads out to so many other questions, because you're, you're going to be talking about your lives. You're going to be talking about, you know, your ultimate hopes for your lives and, and regrets as well, and the possibility for change. These are intimate conversations. They're conversations we should be having so much more frequently. Especially before a crisis. And when we're in a crisis, it sometimes feels too late. Uh, you know, and I think that's your interviews within this film made that very, very prevalent to me, is that don't wait it is now. And so again, it's into the night.org. And of course, I've been in hospice care for 17 years and I've seen the film twice. And I think this could be a great community educational tool, volunteer tool, um, staff tool, some way to look at death um, from a different perspective. And you would come along for the ride I would too? Come along. I would absolutely come along. So, well, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be in your home to see some of your awards that I'm I'm going to take pictures of with me kissing it because that is my <laughs> dream. And to be sitting in front of a woman, a filmmaker, who since I was 12 years old so wanted to be, it is my honor to know you. And I say keep telling the stories because you do it so, so well. Well. Thank you so much. And there is a part two coming. That's right. Part two is on the way. And yeah. you're looking for some funding. I'm looking for funding. It's all done. It's all finished. It's all edited. I need just a bit of money to buy the rights for the film, for film rights and music rights. And if you know part one, you'll understand that the music is so important in, in my films. I mean, I don't just, I had Maria Callas in part one singing one of the great Norma Arias and but anyway in part two there's it's it isn't just a continuation of part one it is a deepening of part one the question is the same how can we live with death in our eye how can we live consciously with death in our eye but the perspectives are quite different it opens with the scientists respectable many of them very quite mainstream respectable scientists whose attitude towards death is one not that death is the enemy, but to push back against death, to live longer and healthier lives. And so death is a, is a kind of an adversary and, and, their pers and their perspective on death. And then the film sort of pivots and says, but meanwhile, we die. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and <laughs> immortality is a dream. And how do we die? And in this two hours, you will meet a... An amazing Native American woman, you know, with a degree from Harvard in, in, in you know, a, a, as a doctor, uh, but, a, but her specialty is alternative medicine, and she has four-stage cancer. And you'll see how she has crafted her story and is prepared to die, how these rich traditions of both growing up a Catholic and the rich tradition, ancestor traditions, and 
have really prepared her for going into the night. And then there are two artists who are looking at the narrative of art and will it sustain you? And they discover that for them, no, it's love that will sustain Ooh. them. And there are Buddhists who, who can, can, Jewish, two Jewish men who, who are in charge of the Zen hospice care in, in New York City and, and, he will be with them as they are tending to dying patients and really bring up something very important about the narrative of acceptance and saying how destructive that can be. That when presenting radiance and acceptance, which is something we all hope for, it can make the dying person feel so lonely who's feeling anger and illness. And so that's a wonderful corrective story um, with the Buddhist perspective of acceptance in the middle of that. And then there's a Jewish historian from of ancient texts from Harvard who had a fourth stage cancer, and he had to discover a whole new relationship to, to God uh, and through the ancient texts when this came up. And, and Sam Keen, a very well-known New Age writer, who at the age of 80, as he put it, I'm building my ship of death. And this is a man <laughs> That's who, awesome. who went through <clears throat> fundamentalism of childhood, always searching for a narrative that would that would make death easier through the new age, all the new, and you name it in the new age, Esalen, he went through it. And now he's in Marin County, he's written many books, searching for acceptance, and has taken up the trapeze at the age of, 70 took it up and he's still doing it. And he's tell, he tells me, acceptance, trapeze teaches you the art of letting go. Oh wow! So and then and then a dying town, uh, truly a dying town of older people, uh, moving from population of sort of twenty thousand to fifteen hundred because all the the age related and and also the economy left and so many of the men and women in this town are dealing with one of the most potent stories of all, which is a the. Difficulty of going into the night if you feel you've not had a lived life. And if you have had a lived life, because we focus on one person in the town who, who died in the middle of the filming, but she, with very little money, really lived her life. Uh, and it's a very interesting contrast, but it's 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 an ex- exploration of the power of the lived life and the power also of the unlived life as you're facing death. Mm. So all these are the perspectives in part two. Well, we need into some the funding night. because I, I'm going to help you with that, <laughs> and we're going to try to get some people because that needs to come out. So tell me, how do you want to face your end of life? Well, I. I'd always hoped that I would find a narrative of faith, um, and it has eluded me all my life. Through all my work has always been directly some kind of exploration of, of belief and unbelief, and that's not going to happen. But this film has made me a lot more reconciled to that, oh, truly. Wow. Uh, if you if you look at the opening of this film, it is the most personal part of the film. It is really an expression of 
of what I have taken from this film. And the film opens with a dream of a dying patient. And she does, in fact, die the next morning. But she records her dream with to this very well-known psychiatrist who writes about death, Irvie Allen. And in the dream, and the film opens this way, and it's, it's my... It speaks to me. She says, I am my, my, this dream, this last dream I'm having right now is I'm alone in a harbor. It's night is falling. There are boats all around me with their lights glimmering. I can't speak to them. I can't reach them. But the comfort I have knowing that they are up late at night with me wondering about these questions. And I have found such solace in the making of this film that <clears throat> people are up at night with me, arm in arm, sort of facing these mysteries. Uh, and if there's a narrative that I think that is above all the, the powerful one, it is one of love. Mm. And, and connection. And connection. You know, and I, I, I feel like we are born to connect. And in a world that forces disconnection, it is, is, a, is a struggle. It's an absolute struggle to maintain connection. And especially in the world we live in, too, is to turn away from hate and to, to absolutely rage into love, um, even when we don't want to. We cannot sell out. And I do feel like, you know, wisdom tells me everything. And I mean, wisdom tells me I'm nothing and love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere in between our lives are living. And I always have said, as long as I'm breathing, please let me stick closer to love than anything. And and this film is a, a, a beautiful work of your heart and love and a, a message that that will be heard. And part two's coming, which is awesome. And um and I just, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I mean, you are a storyteller and, you know, I'm, I'm the next woman trying to tell a story and, and create legacy with people like Shonda Rhimes who, who, who want to embrace and, and make a statement in, in this atmosphere that we're all living in. And so I'm just honored to know you. Well, this has been one of the really great interviews. And may I ever have another such interview as I travel around? Well, I'm sure you will. But thank you for who you are. Never stop telling your story. And your legacy is really, really rich. Um, and, I can, and I'm learning from it right now. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.